Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsport 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. Heard him moving around in the chair. It's time for Nostalgic Radio. Add cars. Hey, listeners, welcome. You are tuned in to the one and only Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Boy, have I got a heck of a show planned for you guys tonight. We are doing a special tribute show honoring probably the most famous man in automotive history. Over the last 60 years, this guy's evolved as just a little old jalopy driver, to a Le Mans winning driver, to a race car builder, to an automobile manufacturer, father of the Cobra, probably the most famous car on the planet. It gives me great pleasure to do a show dedicated to Carroll Shelby. Here's a quick history lesson. After serving in the military during World War II as a flight instructor, he eventually moved back to Texas, started a small dump truck business, and then wound up being a chicken farmer. But here's where the story gets better. Carroll Shelby always had an interest in cars. So what he would do on the sides and on weekends is he would drive these old jalopies on these old dirt tracks. And then one day a friend of his introduced him to uh, sport car racing, as Carroll Shelby would say, and uh, he started driving on road courses. Well, this was a heck of a lot more fun than going round and around in circles. So then he was bitten by the bug. A few years into it, he was just driving around. But then by 1954-55, he was getting paid as a professional. By 1959, he won the 24-hour Le Mans, which is the creme de la creme of uh, road races in the world. Okay, And that's what all road racing drivers aspire to achieve, is to win the 24-hour of Le Mans. But Carroll Shelby had developed a heart problem, a heart condition. So uh, what he decided to do after 1960 and running his last race, I believe it was at Riverside, uh, with nitroglycerin pills that he had to take during the race, which he should have won, but he had to slow down to take the pills, so his buddy ended up passing him, which that was the joke of the race later. He said, well, you were winning. What happened? He said, I had to slow down and take my nitroglycerin pills. Otherwise, uh, I would have never made it through the race. At that point, realizing that his racing career was over, Carroll Shelby set his goals a bit higher. He wanted to be a car builder, a manufacturer, specifically race cars. In his quest to build the ultimate race car, Carroll Shelby stumbled across a company called AC, and they apparently had lost their engine supplier. Well, it just so happens that Carroll Shelby was also buddy-buddies with the guys at Ford Motor Company, who just happened to have this really neat, lightweight V8 small block. At this point, Carroll was successful in convincing Ford Motor Company to supply him with two small block V8s, a little bit of cash, 
Then he proceeded to AC Cars of England and convinced them to supply him with two cars, two rolling chassis, aluminum body chassis. Then, with the help of his friend Dean Moon and a couple other guys, he worked as Carroll Shelby Magic and built two AC cars. One, a street version for promotional purposes, and the other one to go serious racing. And the rest, my friends, is in the history books. What I have in store for you this evening are five interviews. Now keep in mind, this is the 50th anniversary of the AC Cobra. Now the interviews consist of three former Shelby American employees and two highly respected Cobra collectors and members of the Shelby American Automobile Club. I also want to give special thanks to Rick Kopeck, who's in charge of SAC, the Shelby American Automobile Club, and Bob Shaw for helping me get in contact with some of the former employees and club members. Oh yeah, and as an added bonus, I'm going to play the full-length version of Bill Cosby's stand-up routine, 200 mile an hour. It's the famed story about Bill Cosby and the twin supercharged, twin carbureted, and twin side-piped 427 Shelby Cobra. I'm walking around... Department store, and I bump into Carol Shelby. Boom. So, Carol starts chewing me out. What you doing driving them foreign cars? I said, What do you mean? You got them Ferraris and them Maseratis and all them foreign cars. You supposed to be driving an American car. You're an American, ain't you? Yeah. Well, drive an American car. I said, Well, in the first place, an American car only does 160. That's all there's to it. Ferrari goes 180. I need a car that does 180 or better to get to work. Because I live two miles, you know, from work. And so I can say to my wife, goodbye, dear, and I'm at work, see? And so he's, well, I'm going to tell you something right now. The Cobra people, my, my people, will build a car for you, and I don't want to see you in another Ferrari as long as you live. You understand that? I said, yeah. I said, how fast is it going to go? It'll do over 200 miles an hour. You're kidding. No, sir, Rebob. It'll do over 200 miles an hour because I'm having one built for me and it's going to have automatic shift. You won't have to worry about no clutch. It's 900 horsepower, 427 cubic inches, and it'll have dual everything. <laughs> I said, okay, man. Make that car for me. I'm telling you right now, it's going to have dual superchargers, going to have uh, dual horsepower, going to have dual engines in it, going to have dual wheels, dual steering wheels, dual, dual glove compartment, everything. Everything's going to be dual. And you and I will just drive down the highway doing over 200 miles an hour and loving it. I said, okay. Now, I'm like a kid Christmas Eve waiting for this car. I've got to have this car because I mean to me it means a lot it means that I can put down a lot of people the kids with them Chevys and, and, the, big, and the big wheels that go all the way around about the size of the airplane wheels and, and the kids always driving downhill and everything don't leave me alone now hey you want to drag no sir get away from here I'll drive by Steve McQueen's house and put him down It's gonna be my car over 200 miles an hour. I just see myself mm, over 200, over 200, over 200. One night, the doorbell rang. That's my doorbell. My wife had that doorbell put in. 
That wasn't my doorbell. See, when we had the house built, I put in my own doorbell, which I thought was really groovy. And it is. It's cool. I get tired of... When you push my doorbell, it says, Somebody's at the door. That's very hip to me. I love that. You know. And the houseman comes up to me and says, Mr. Cosby's a man out there with the cobra. What? The cobra. You're kidding. No, sir. Have him come in. So the guy walks in, and he's all dressed in black. And he's got his name across the thing. That's Bob. <laughs> How'd you know? Did you, did you meet him before? Bob, Bob, of course. And he says, here are the keys to your cobra, Mr. Cosby. Is it outside? Yes, sir. Oh, man. Give me the keys. And I ran upstairs and I changed clothes, put on my Italian racing shoes, and put on a shirt with an ascot, and I put on my scarf, and it was starched, going straight back. And I had my hair all starched and going straight back. Look out, Snoopy! And I come downstairs, and I go outside, and I look, and there she is, all blue. It's got chrome pipes coming out of the engine, wrapping all the way around the car, forming into a roll bar. And on the hood, there's a, a hickey. That's where the superchargers live, right there in that hickey. And I said, oh, man, my car. Oh, and pipes, pipes coming out, the exhaust pipes just coming out, shooting out 18, 19 diameter inches, cubic centimeter pipes, pipes. Wait till them kids in the Chevy see these pipes. They'll go crazy. They'll say, oh, wow, look at them pipes, man. This guy's got pipes coming out of his car. Oh, wow. And I opened the door, and I got in the car. My car. Ooh. I love you, car. And I kind of just, kind of just, just kind of oozed into the seat. My car. And I wrapped both hands around the steering wheel and I just kind of sat there and went. I said, why don't you start it up? <laughs> yeah, I forgot all about that. Man. And I put the key in. And right by the key, there's a, a gold plaque. It says, this car is made especially for Mr. Bill Cosby by Carol Shelby and Company. 900 horsepower, 427 cubic inch engine, dual supercharges dual everything and will do over 200 miles an hour and is faster than anything Steve McQueen owns. <laughs> I looked at the speedometer. The speedometer starts at zero, goes all the way up around to 200 mph and under the 200 there's still more room and the words, oh wow. <laughs> Oh, 
And there's a fire extinguisher. Now, this is really groovy, man. A fire extinguisher. Now, can you tell me how many cars have a fire extinguisher so that they're driving down the street, man, you see a house in fire, you know, and you just jump right out of it. And he said, my goodness, thank you so much. I loved it. And my scarf was just sitting there, straight back, flying in the wind. And I put it in neutral and smiled at the guy. 900 horsepower, oh boy. And I started it up. And I turned it off. concerned with my safety. The ambulance driver is too lazy to look for the body. <laughs> and I started the car. 
because I don't know any other word for it. Okay, we're live, and this is Nostalgic Radio on Cars. Now, what I got coming up next is I've got some interviews with some people that I know through the Shelby Club. I've got a short interview with uh, Ned Scudder. He's the Cobra Registrar. I've got a short interview with Lynn Park. Uh, Lynn is probably the foremost collector slash expert on AC Cobras. I've got Chuck Cantwell coming on. Chuck Cantwell is the uh, gentleman that was in charge of the Shelby GT350 program, 1965, 66, 67. And I've got Phil Remington coming on. He was the engineer for Carroll Shelby, which is probably the guy that worked the most amount of magic to make the team the most successful. And then I've got J.L. Henderson, and J.L. Henderson used to work for Carroll Shelby, started out at Carroll Shelby, and then wound up working at his Goodyear store. Uh, We're going to play these interviews. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoy the show because I think it's a great show. These are some great people involved with Shelby and Shelby American. All right, my next guest for the evening is a friend of mine from California and an avid Cobra collector and, of course, a very good friend of Carol Shelby. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show this evening, Lynn Park. Lynn, are you there? I am here. How are you? I am just great. Thank you. So how's the weather in California? This is what you call Chamber of Commerce weather today. It's like 80 degrees and blue sky, and it's just perfect. Super. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Carol Shelby since this is a... Carol Shelby tribute show. Tell us about the man, the cars, and your friendship with him. I have known Carol Shelby for 50 years and been particularly good friends with him for the last 35 or 40 and just enjoyed every minute of it. Do you got any good stories that you can tell us? Some really happy, memorable times. Matter of fact, I think there was one story you were telling me about where you were uh, using some of the cars for a film to kind of recreate a uh, 1962 version of the Shelby Cobra in the back of Dean Moon's shop. We had a, a film crew going to do that behind the headlights TV series that uh, Speed Vision ran, and Carol Shelby, of course, is involved. We were we were going to recreate the, the installing of the motor and building the first Cobra. Now that was obviously done forty some years prior, and it was done in Santa Fe Springs, and I'm a long way from there. And the film crew said, "Well, you watch how we're going to do this, and we're going to make it work." And and Carol was funny because he had arrived that day a little bit grumpy anyway, and and he said. It, it, never going to work. You're never going to fool anybody. And the next thing you know, they're filming this thing in short little clips, and it's in black and white, and you look at the finished product, and he absolutely could not believe that it could be done like they did it. And he was absolutely amazed. So, like, what was the procedure? What were some of the details that the guys did that uh, made it look so retro? The secret, first 
of all, I think, was the black and white film. Uh-huh. The second was that they never shot one scene more than about two or three seconds. There were little short little blasts, so you weren't looking in the background. You weren't seeing what was hanging on the wall or sitting on a workbench. You were seeing the car that we were doing. We, we took a, a Cobra that I happened to have without a motor in it, and we put a motor on the hoist, and we're dropping the motor in just as if it were 1962. And they missed one little spot on the editing. There was a, a later Cobra in the background that we just spotted when we, when he saw it for the first time, and obviously had to take that out. But the, the film guy says, you know what? Hardly anybody would ever even notice that if you were showing it on TV. And then, so what did you do? So you basically did a depiction of the first Cobra being built, and then what it looked like in the back of the shop. Was this supposed to kind of uh, simulate Dean Moon's workshop that he had back in the day? Yes, but you know what was interesting is we did this without even consulting a picture of Dean Moon's shop. Nobody worried about that. They said, oh, your, your shop is fine. Even though if they were to look at the walls, they'd see pictures of Cobra racing, and they say, well, that probably wouldn't have been in Dean Moon's shop. But these guys were so good, and Shelby was amazed. He, he was amazed of how it came out, because... Because here we were, all these years later, and these film guys just had us bamboozled, and it worked. Now, you also did a driving scene, too. Didn't you do, like, a recreationing or some uh, well-known racetrack? They took Shelby's parking lot and stacked a bunch of hay bales around to simulate apexes of turns at Sebring, which is a big, giant airport racetrack. And they said, okay, here you are. They put me in a Billy Krause driver's suit with a helmet on, and in the number one Cobra, we, we put... Numbers on the side, and they said, do this and do that and do this. And Shelby laughed. He says, everybody's going to know this is not Sebring. And he's standing there watching, and, and I'm driving through the hay bales back and forth. And next thing you know, they show us the film just on the little video camera they had working. And Shelby said, well, it is Sebring. So it, it's amazing what those guys can do. The, the marvels of Hollywood, so to speak. Now, Bill Krause was the original race car driver for Carroll Shelby. Wasn't he the first driver that he had? Uh, Billy Krause drove CSX 2002, the first Cobra race car, in a race in, I think it was October of 62 at Riverside. And even though he didn't win, he went and, and was so far ahead that the Corvettes and the Jaguars said, uh-oh, we can see the handwriting on the wall. They, they broke a hub that they had Phil Remington fix and redesigned and made it stronger. But yes, Billy Krause was the, the first Cobra racer. Now, when he raced, did he race number 98 back in the day, too? You know, you know what's funny about Billy Krause? He didn't have a very long career with Shelby because Mickey Thompson convinced him that Shelby was an upstart company and was going nowhere, and he ought to switch his driving talent over to Corvette because they had General Motors behind him and they were going to be the stars. And to this day, that's one of Billy Krause's biggest regrets, is that he didn't listen to Shelby and went on and drove for Mickey Thompson and General Motors. Now, did you know Mickey Thompson by any chance? No, I did not. You didn't? Okay. I was just curious, because you were still part of that uh, Southern California um, hot rod crowd, weren't you, back then? Absolutely. I have been involved in, in Cobras specifically, but all forms of, of hot rodding and, and vintage racing for the last 50 years. But... I just never had occasion to, to more than say hi or meet Mickey Thompson, but I can't really say I knew him at all. Okay. Well, before your days of Cobras, because I know you're an avid Cobra collector, and you've owned probably, what, 20 or 30, and you found a number of barn finds over the years. But uh, So before your Cobra days, what kind of cars were you into? Well, what's interesting, before I was a Cobra guy, I had a 1956 Ford that I had put a great big Edsel motor into, 
And, and it was just what you'd expect. It was fast in a straight line, but didn't do anything else very well. And my sister's boyfriend at the time, we're talking 1961 or two, he came home and with this road and track magazine, and he was a big sports car fan, but they had no power. They were of no interest to anybody. And he said, look at this. Here's a sports car with a Ford motor in it. And from that moment, I was a UCLA student. Venice was very close to UCLA. And bingo, I, I moved to Shelby, America. I lived over there. They, they thought I was an employee. I was there so much. Oh, no kidding, really. So who were some of the first employees that worked for Carroll Shelby back in the day? So Billy Cross was a driver. Phil Remington was uh, a fabricator, right? Self-taught engineer, fabricator. And, and better than that, he was a thinker. You know, he's one of these pragmatists that when he saw something wrong or something break, he said, you know, we can fix that. We'll do it this, this, and this. And the next thing you know, it's, it's done. They had to do these things very quickly. And, and Phil Remington uh, was largely responsible for the racing success of the Cobras and the GT40. Now, is it true then that the shop that Carroll Shelby took over in Venice belonged to uh, Lance Reventlow? Yes. Okay, and then Phil Remington worked there. Well, they, they had a lot of employees. Alan Grant, who later became a driver, worked over there, as we did John Morton, who became a driver. It's amazing how many drivers for Shelby started off just working in the shop. Shelby was, was very hesitant to just tell anybody, yes, you're going to be my driver. He, he had people, famous people, go to work for him. They were already drivers, Parnelli Jones and Phil Hill and Dan Gurney. But some of the lesser-known guys had to kind of pay their dues by being shop people. John Morton was a janitor for a while. I think Alan Grant was a welder. And they moved up into the driving positions. Now, and your your involvement was is basically because you just you just became a Cobra fanatic once that Road Track magazine came out, and then you just started hanging out there, and you just became buddy buddies with those guys, and that's what established your long endearing relationship with Carol Shelby, correct? It did. I wanted to buy a Cobra, but you know, a college kid in in 1962 doesn't have six thousand dollars, so I bought an AC and turned it into a Cobra, just as Shelby basically did. So. I spent my time at Shelby's trying to learn how to do what it was I was going to do, and he introduced me to this uh, other fellow named Jim Finley who worked there, and he and I became very good friends, still our friends today. But because he worked there and he was willing to show me everything, keep in mind this is not like it was later at the airport. This is a real small, friendly bunch of guys. They're just getting started. They're changing colors on the cars that they're sending out to the magazine of the one car they were sending to the magazines to make them think they had three or four. This was a really small company, so it was real easy to just become part of the group there. Everybody knew one another, and it was, it was a very fun place to hang out. And then w- what year was it that you got your first Cobra? I got out of the Army in 1969 late and bought a Cobra in 1970. It was a little bit wrecked, so it was very inexpensive. And I started from there. Okay. And was it a small block car or a big block car? A small block. little like, It was the 46 Cobra built. It had been hit in the front end a little bit. So I got it, started fixing it up. And, you know, Cobras are funny. You get one and one is not enough. So you see another one that's kind of hurt and you want to buy it too. And the next thing you know, you've sold one and bought another one. And that's true today. People that will buy a Cobra suddenly want another. Okay, so it's like uh, an addiction, so to speak. I hate to say it, but that you're right. It is absolutely an addiction. Whatever happened to the little Bristol that you converted over to a kind of a cover-type car? Well, you know, it's kind of funny because that car still exists in 95% of the same format it was when, when I sold it in like 1971, maybe 1972. 
It's living in England right now, but it still has all the things done to it that I had done back then. It still has the same dash. I put a funny formica-colored, um, a rose rosewood formica dash in it, a very, very interesting engine compartment. And all those things still exist with the car. I get pictures of it periodically from the person that owns it now. Well, that's interesting. Now, when you had that car, that Bristol, short of putting the, uh, or besides putting the engine in there, did you modify the front end of the car a little bit, the sheet metal or the aluminum front end, to kind of look like a Cobra, or did you leave that alone? No, I left it still looking like the AC. I, okay. I, just, I didn't like the result of when guys did that, so I just left it alone. Okay. So you did do the motor and drivetrain thing, though. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. You do one thing first. You do the engine and transmission, and then before long you break the rear end, so then you go to the Cobra rear end, and then you start breaking the, the little stub axles out at the at the wheels and brakes. And then you do that, and then the steering brakes. And before long you've converted to all Cobra parts out of necessity, and, and that's what Phil Remington saw in the AC at first and said, this is the things we have to do. And you just said, boom, and did them all at once, and they were perfect. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's a real interesting story. That, that kind of shows your allegiance to Cobras. And as a matter of fact, outside of Cobras, have you had other Shelby cars or just primarily Cobras? Just Cobras. I owned one sixty-five Shelby for about six months, and that Shelby and I just didn't get along very well. So I sold it, and I've just stuck with Cobras. I think over the years I've probably owned closer to 50 cars and then 20 or 30. I've just it's, All I do are Cobras. Wow, that's great. Well, Lynn, we're just about out of time here, but I do want to thank you for coming on for a few minutes and uh, sharing that uh, that cool story, that really neat story there uh, about Carol Shelby and about they used, you know, how they converted your shop into uh, a retro Dean Moon shop where the first cover was made and the engine installation and everything like that. That's really cool. That's a great story. But you're all heading for the 50 year anniversary of the AC Cobra at the Monterey Historic because there's a huge event going to take place and you've got some cars that you're preparing uh, that will be competing at the vintage races there at Laguna Seca, correct? I, I am, and we are. That will be the best Cobra event we've had in a long time. I'm just sorry Carol can't be there because that was one of his wishes last year. He said, Lynn, I've been invited to so many celebrations, but that one at Monterey is the one I really want to go to, and we're going to miss him. Wow, that's unfortunate. Well, again, I want to thank you uh, for coming on the show this evening. Lynn Park, our guest this evening, uh, one of many guests. This is our tribute show to uh, Carol Shelby. And uh, Lynn, hopefully with a little luck, I'll see you out in Monterey this uh, summer. Stop by. We'll be with all the Cobras. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Mm, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, we're live. Now, that was an interview with uh, Lynn Park, a friend of mine from uh, California. And a couple of years ago, let's see, a couple of years ago, geez, it was back in the early 2000s, um, we were there. He had an open house at his uh, lovely home up there in the hills in uh, Los Angeles. And his cover collection is absolutely amazing. So, But anyway, hey, I just want to let you guys know that we're having a real bad storm going it on right storming. now. It is storming. It is storming, isn't it, Bill? Electric went off a couple times. We thought maybe it was going to make it go out and then we wouldn't be on air but thank god we're on the air we'll get this thing straightened out here but i do want you guys to know that we really do have a <laughs> a uh, lightning storm going on matter of fact what is it is this the area considered the uh, lightning capital of the world is that true phil uh bill yeah okay so anyway so yes, we're, gonna, it is. we're gonna try to get through this we got a couple more interviews we got chuck cantwell coming up we got ned scudder and we have uh jl henderson coming on Okay, hey, my next guest is Chuck Cantwell. Now, Chuck's a friend of mine. I met him a long time ago, but guess what? His main priority when he worked for Carol Shelby was he was in charge of the GT350 program. So, Chuck, are you there? And welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Glad to be on. So, how you been? I haven't seen you in a few years, but... 
Um, so what's new? Well, I've been fine. I'm uh, retired, of course, now, and, and uh, you know, follow all the Shelby activities and the conventions and uh, work on some cars, and I have just acquired a 66 Shelby of my own about a year ago, so I'm enjoying that. Wow, that's super. Now, while we're on the subject of 66 GT350s, you were in charge of the complete GT350 program for Carroll Shelby back in the 60s. Now, that included both street cars and race cars, correct? That's correct, yes. Okay, so tell us a little bit how that came about, what you did before you joined Shelby. Shelby, and then how the GT350 program came to fruition and how you became involved. Okay, well, before, right, you know, initially before I uh, went to work for Carroll, I worked for uh, GM styling staff in Detroit and in a preliminary engineering group, and I did a lot of sports car racing, and I was involved on the board of directors of the Oakland County Racing Club and the SCCA in Detroit. And so everybody in those groups knew all the other people and the other companies that, that uh, were involved in racing and, and worked in the auto industry. So uh, the Shelby program was proposed at Ford. Uh, Iacocca went to Carroll and wanted him to, to do a performance Mustang and then to try to get it in the sports car class so it could race against the Corvettes. And uh, so Carroll decided, accepted the challenge and decided to do that. I did a lot of preliminary uh work on the cars. Uh, Pete Brock and, and did some design exercises, and uh, uh, Phil Remington and, and Ken Miles did the, uh, some testing on a, just a production notchback that they'd modified with uh, some uh, parts that Ford Engineering had supplied and suggested. And uh, so there was a, they had sort of a basic package that they were going to apply to the car and had uh, talked to SCCA to agree that if we could build enough cars, they would accept it in the production car class, but it had to be a two-seater instead of a four-seater. So all those things were sort of design parameters for the car, but everything was pretty much up in the air and nothing much was nailed down. And Sam Smith from uh, work with Ray Geddes and Ford Special Vehicles contacted me one time and said, let's go to dinner. And we went out and talked about thing. He said, Shelby's going to do a, a performance Mustang and he wants somebody to be the engineer on the car, and uh, so offered me the opportunity to talk to them, and I went out to California and talked to Carol and talked to Peyton Kramer, who was the general manager then, and came back home and, and got a job offer. So in uh, October, end of October, I went out, worked for Carol Shelby, and uh, I spent some time at Ford, engineer, at Ford with the uh, engineers in the performance group, Sam Smith and Ray Geddes, we worked out a, a big, long list of all the parts that we needed to uh, provide for the car to make it a complete, you know, to finish the production car. So that, that's how it all started. And uh, then, I, you know, I, then I went out there and went to work. Well, now, did you have a comfortable job at General Motors at the time, and then you were basically, well, like, recruited? Yeah, I, I did. I, I worked at styling staff in a, in a production, well, a preliminary engineering group, and, and I was doing a lot of sports car racing there in the area. So I was pretty comfortable. I had a... A nice job and, uh, you know, a lot of outside activities with the sports car racing, so. Okay. Hey, did you ever race at Waterford Hills up there in Detroit? Oh, I, I did. I was, on the, yeah, I, was, I was on the board of directors of Waterford. In fact, I was the competition director when I left. Oh, no uh, kidding. Water, Waterford Hills. I left Detroit and, and uh, went to California. Uh, just off the record here, do you, are you friends with uh, Gib Hubstetter? Do you know him? Oh, Gib, Gib and I go way back, no all kidding. the way back to college. We were in college together. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I met him at Waterford Hills last year. Oh, did you really? Uh-huh, with his old Corvette. Well, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, he's got that Corvette he's had. He ran that thing for 30 years before he finally decided he should rebuild the engine. <laughs> no kidding. He gives a, Gib's a great guy. I mean, he was a great Corvette engineer and 
and then in the end worked in the, one of the engine groups uh, before he retired, and then after he retired, he worked for uh, their racing department. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so now when you're at the GT350 program here at uh, Shelby, the you built primarily fastbacks, and how did it come to what brought the uh, notchbacks into uh, into the program? Well, the notch, yeah, we started out with the fastbacks, and that we made that a two seater, and uh, and that made uh, allowed us to race in the SCCA in their uh, B production class. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, at the end of the '65 racing season, at the end of the year, actually in December, Ford called and said, uh, you know, SCCA is going to do a Trans Am uh, series, and they want to use uh, production. Uh, notchback cars for that. They didn't need to be two-seaters because they were supposed to be sedan racing. Uh, so we uh, we built a prototype and uh, filled out all the homologation papers for Ford and sent them back to them, and which they sent in. And then uh, we went out and bought a car off a lot. We only had a small budget, bought a car off a lot, and built it up pretty much like a GT350, you know, to match the homologation papers. And they had some, some rules. You, you had to run the... Uh, regular interior in the car <clears throat> so when you got done you had a notchback gt350 essentially with a with, with interior and and uh, so forth in the car and it, when you drove it on a racetrack it was a lot quieter than a regular gt350 racer but which didn't did not have any of the uh, sound deadening or uh, interior in the car so that's how we got started in that and uh, we built cars in 1966 for the to sell to customers and we had our prototype for a while, but then sold that to a, another to a private owner who raced it. And then uh, at the end of the year, we took one of our customer cars that we'd built that hadn't been sold yet and put Jerry Titus in it for the uh, Riverside race. And then he and he ran it in the Riverside race and won the race, which won the championship for Ford. Then the next year, '67, we <clears throat> uh, the car rules changed a bit, and there were more more race car configuration, and we. Built cars, which we uh, for customer sale, and also uh, we had a race team of two cars for Jerry Titus and uh, Dick Thompson initially, and then Ronnie Bucknam, and we raced the long distance races at Daytona and Sebring, and did well in those. Actually, in '67, we raced the, the four-hour race at, at Sebring and the same at Daytona, and uh, we got involved with all of that series. Had a lot of uh, big name racers, you know, Dan Gurney and Parnelli Jones and. Ed Leslie and uh, some of the stock car drivers, Kale Yarborough, and uh, ran in the in the race in those races a couple times, and so it was a good uh, competitive series. Now, '66 and '67, Ford pretty much dominated, correct? Yeah, pretty pretty much. The '66 was all customer cars, and but around the country in the different races, uh, the the Fords did real well, well enough that if we when we came to Riverside the last race of the year, that uh, if we won it in a in a Mustang, even though there weren't teams, the, the points were such that if Mustang won the race, then that would they would win the series. Okay, and that was what what we provided the car for Titus to drive for. Well, we got a few minutes left. Tell us a cute old story, kind of a cool story about Carol Shelby. Carol was always one that uh, sort of told you what he wanted to do. I mean, you had meetings and discussed what your program objectives were, so you knew that uh, when you're racing Trans Am, you're supposed to go out and win races. One time at Briar Motorsport Park, we were. It was one of those days when it looked like it was going to rain, but hadn't rained yet. So, uh, what do you start the car on? Rain tires, dry tires, 
so Carol came up and asked me, he said, what are you, you going to do with the cars? And I said, well, it's not raining yet, so we're going to start them on dry. And he said, well, did you think about splitting the cars, one on dry and one on wet? And I said, uh, yeah, I did, but I thought, you know, we've got a good crew. We've got enough guys to change tires pretty fast, and, and they're good at it. And if it's good to start one car on dries, then it's probably good to start two. So I was going to start both of them on dries. And he said, okay, that's fine. He didn't countermand or, or say, well, I think you ought to do this or that. As long as you could explain things, he was, was happy. He was just a great guy to work for. Always, you know, always there at, at the shop unless he was traveling somewhere. And uh, always willing to, you know, to help out and a very encouraging kind of guy. So he was a fun, enjoyable person to work for. So what was the outcome on the race? Well, it turned out in that race, that was the race that Jerry Titus was, uh, you know, once we got it back, once it rained and, and he got on rain tires and then some other guys uh, had started on rain tires. While we were changing tires, they, they passed us, but they weren't as fast a cars as we were. And Jerry was lapping one of those cars and the guy nailed him, spun him out. So that results weren't real good. Dick Thompson, I think, finished second or third. Racing has a lot of things that can occur in it and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. That's true. Well, Chuck, I want to thank you for coming on the show here and uh, sharing a few stories about uh, your glory days at uh, Shelby Automotive. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll bump into each other here maybe at Lime Rock this summer. Well, I hope so. I look forward to that. Actually, not Lime Rock. It's going to be Watkins Glen. Yeah, Watkins Glen. Okay. All right. Well, Chuck. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll definitely be in touch. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, we're live, and that was an interview with Chuck Cantwell. Chuck's a really, really super guy, too. I didn't know all the stuff about Michigan when he used to race up at Waterford Hills and stuff. Okay, my next guy that's uh, coming on is J.L. Henderson. This should be a cool interview, too, okay? So I hope you guys enjoy this one. Well, my next guest is another interesting gentleman, also a former Shelby employee. And I met him a few years back at the uh, Shelby American Convention in uh, Los Angeles. Um, at the time, we were all chowing down on some real serious Texas chili. So uh, it gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce my next guest. J.L., short for James, Henderson. And James used to work for Carol Shelby back in the day. And James, welcome to the show. And you've got some great stories for us about Carol Shelby, don't you? Well, I have a few, yes. Thanks. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your past. You're kind of a hot rodder that uh, actually you're you're from Texas originally, and then you moved to California, and you were kind of hot rodding back in the late 50s, early 60s. And tell us how that all panned out for you and how you wound up with uh, Shelby American. Well, in Southern California, we I, I was in Texas. We came to California when I was uh, 12 years old. But then, then right after, in, during high school, we all started hot rodding. You know, AV8s, we put the uh, V8 engines in the uh, Model A's, of course. And then, and where I grew up, there was a whole group of people, these like hot rodders around there. And uh, some of them became quite famous. And uh, uh, we anyway, we did a lot of street racing also. And then, uh, how was it that you uh, came to Carroll Shelby? I. I had uh, been working on a, a, a stock car, and uh, we decided, the gentleman that owned it decided to take it to, or actually take it to Daytona. Well, we got the car brand new, and we took the car to Daytona and actually built the car uh, in uh, out of Holman Moody's shop and built the car, and a fellow by the name of Eddie Gray drove it in the uh, 64 one of the 100-mile races, and we didn't really qualify for the race, so we came back to California with it. And we had a shop over in uh, Compton, and uh, working on the car, was going to do some local racing with it out here. And uh, uh, one of the fellows that used to come around all the time, he came in with this little funny car, and I thought it was an MG, of course, and it ended up being a Cobra. So I naturally asked what it was. He said, oh, it's a Cobra. 
And he said, you want to drive it? And I said, well, sure. So I drove the thing, and my God, you know, that's what we've been looking for all these years, to a V8 in a, in a small chassis. So anyway, he said uh, he had just gone to work for Charles Shelby, and um, he was looking for someone to run a department or, or to start a department where we would uh, take the parts off the 289s and uh, put them in, into a, a warehouse and start selling them, uh, those parts. So anyway, when I got over there, uh, I was immediately put into the uh, tire division. Carol Shelby uh, was the race tire distributor for the 11 Western states, and he had gotten that uh, when he built the first Cobra. A gentleman by the name of Tony Webner was uh, director of racing for Goodyear, and so he made Carol one of the six distributors for the United States. So anyway, I was put into the racing part of it. I uh, was there about uh, two or three weeks, and then uh, I went back to Indianapolis and was back there working for Goodyear, and I got a call from Carol, and he said, I want you to, when you get back here, I want to talk to you. And uh, so I came back, and he said, I want to put you in charge of this uh, race, this tire thing. So that's uh, how it started with uh, me doing the Carol Shelby Enterprises uh, Goodyear Racing Tire. Oh, super. Uh, part. No, but, but you originally, you were hired to basically handle the parts, right? That was the whole idea. Yes, they uh, were. To, the parts were being taken off of the engines, and Carol, of course, thought that there might there would be a market for that, and someone to possibly even build up a department where you would do some installation and things like that. Well, that never did uh, did happen. So with me, and it was never followed up on. So as far as I know, that never did happen. So that must have been before the days of Carroll Shelby and aftermarket parts. But it sounds like uh, there was a story I heard one time where a lot of those parts simply they were taken off the 2D9 hypercars like the, the four barrels, the intake manifolds, uh, the exhaust manifolds. And a lot of that stuff didn't wind up on the shelf. They wound up in a dumpster. So how much truth is there to that story? Well, I would say that that is probably truthful, very truthful. Okay. Uh, I never did uh, see that happening. Uh, of course, I wasn't there long enough to see that happening. Some of the people that were there and when that was were in the racing division, they probably did. But I never never saw that happen, but I'm sure that it did happen, yes. Okay. So a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that Carroll Shelby actually had the Goodyear racing tire dis- distributorship for, you said, what, seven states? No, we had for the 11 western states. Oh, uh, 11. There were six original distributors. Uh, Goodyear had uh, six race tire distributors. And uh, one was in New York, and one was in uh, Chicago. One was uh, Ross Huggins, who did the stock cars in uh, uh, and South Carolina. And then there was uh, a Lauderdale Auto Marine, which they did motorcycles, but then they got into the sports car thing. And then Carroll was made the distributor for the 11 Western states. Okay. And at a later date, then one of his friends uh, was made the distributor in uh in Texas. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, when so primarily the racing tires that uh, Carroll Shelby sold at that time were for road race cars, SCCA cars, and maybe circle track cars. Would that be fair? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's what most of them were, and they were just starting to get into drag racing, and uh, some of the seven-inch uh, slicks were made, the first uh, drag tires that you made, and so we were kind of uh, doing, trying to start sell those. Uh, the, the first tires that we did, uh, actually for the Cobra, though, were uh, 
came from the stock car. They they had an 8820 with a straight NASCAR stock car design, and then they made a front tire, a smaller version of that in the 600, 670. So uh, that was the first tires that we really started moving were those tires for the Cobas. And then it went into the sports car thing, of course. Okay, so the tire that most people recognize or the name that they referred to back in the day was the Goodyear Blue Streak. So was that a racing tire or was that kind of a street strip tire or what type of a tire was that? No, no, the Goodyear Blue Streak was a uh, a racing tire and it was a sports car tire, sports car special. But like I said, the Cobra tires, they were not. They were called stock car specials, uh, the first Cobra tires, the 820 and the 600, 670. Okay, so on... but the blue streak is the there's a racing tire, yeah, the sports car tire. Okay, but the ones with the big so on the two eighty nine cars, did they have a different tire on those with a different name than the four twenty seven cars? Uh, the yes, they they definitely had a different tire. Yes, uh huh. But did right. they have did they have a different name? I mean, did they in other words were they spec'd out differently because of uh, the, yeah the 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 ones on the four twenty seven were sports car specials. Okay, the, the actual racing tire for the 289 was a stock car special, really. Okay. So the ones that's a sports car special, was that the one? Because often you'll see like a Carol, uh, a Cobra sitting there, and it's got huge letters on the side that says Goodyear. When the when the Blue Streaks uh, came out, the sports car specials, there were very small Goodyear white letters on them. Okay. And then in the 70s, uh, they decided to utilize a little more of the advertising, so they started putting the large letter white Goodyear on them. Okay. Now, and Carol Shelby also had a uh, tire manu- a wheel manufacturer, or a wheel distributorship, too, right? He started casting some wheels back in the 60s for some of the, the uh, Cobras, the street versions? Um, they, the, for the 427, there was a starburst wheel, I believe they called it, and that was made by, by Carol, and uh, a company named, uh, by the name of Spartan Casting did some castings on those. And then... Uh, and of course, Krager did some uh, wheels also for the GTs and uh, the 350s. Okay. But then, then Carroll did start a wheel company too called Shelby International, okay. where they made aftermarket wheels. Sunburst, I think, was the original cover wheels. Now we got a few minutes left. Why don't you tell us a, a quick little story um, about Carroll Shelby? You know, kind of like a funny little thing or something that we can all laugh about. So uh, I'm sure you got many stories about him because you were with him for what? How many? Like forty some odd years you worked with Carroll Shelby. Uh, yeah, uh, 43 years, yes. Uh-huh. 43, okay. So if anybody's got a got a handle on Carroll Shelby, I'm sure you do. Well, I, uh, uh, I, I've uh, been with him quite a bit, yes. Uh, I, he was never, uh, you know, as far as the tire furniture, he was not really around the tires that much, but uh, he was also, he went to a lot of the auctions. And, okay. Uh, so one of the stories I will remember most because it was probably the funniest thing that ever happened. He we he bought a uh, went to an auction on the weekends. And of course, he would say, "Well, yeah, Jay will come down and get the parts uh, Monday." So he had bought a hook and ladder fire truck, a uh, Hallscott, about a nineteen forty seven or whatever it was. Anyway, uh, myself and another fellow went down to pick it up, and we were coming back with it. We had to charge the battery. It had a six-volt battery and huge cylinders in this thing, big big engine. So we were coming back, and there happened to be a Nissan building, which was about 12 stories with all glass, and the parking lot was full of cars. So we came around the corner with this tall Scott fire truck, old fire truck, and 
tried to keep the car running, or the, the engine running, and all of a sudden it backfired, and it sounded like an atomic bomb. And this thing, every window shook in that building. The whole building evacuated, and every alarm went off in the, in the, uh, the parking lot. So Carol, he got the biggest kick out of that to think that that would happen, because, but it was really funny. Wow. Now, you tell me one other story about auction, that he actually went to the auction and bought two tractors, and these tractors, or loaders, were the very same vehicles that rolled the spruce goose out back in the day when Howard Hughes uh, took that thing out on its maiden uh, flight, correct? What happened was he actually ran into the fellow that was in charge of the spruce goose and uh, got to talking to him and found out that they were going to uh, sell this stuff, so he sold it to Shelby for a dollar. These two D8 Caterpillars and one D3 uh, tractor. And so he bought those, and of course, Thatchery Jail had to go down and pick them up, you know. So I went down and had a, got a friend of mine, and we loaded them all on and brought it back to the shop. And then in turn, they ended up down at his ranch in Texas, and he built one of the big uh, lakes there with these vehicles. Oh, no kidding. Well, that's kind of a cool story, too. So they, yeah. got, they got continued use. That's neat. They did, yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, JL, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you for coming on the show, taking a few minutes to tell us uh, your, your history and your relationship with Carol Shelby. And uh, you know what? I want to stay in touch with you because you sound like you got some really good stories. We might have to have you back on again sometime. What do you say? Well, I appreciate it very much, and I want to thank you for having me on the show. Thanks okay. a lot. I appreciate it. Okay. JL, we'll All talk right. to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. All right, that was a short interview with J.L. Henderson. Our next interview is with uh, Phil Remington. Now, Phil is a super guy. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to do with Phil is I'm going to do a probably a half-hour, 45-minute show with him because he's an extremely fascinating guy. Not only did he work for Lance Reventlow, and before that he worked for another guy building uh, Indy cars. And then after he left Carroll Shelby, after about seven or eight years, he went to, uh, oh, geez, I should know this. All-American Racers, which is AAR. That uh, designation should be very familiar to a lot of guys because AAR was on the back of the Cudas in the 1970 Trans Am Series. And uh, Sweet Savage, Gurney and those guys uh, piloted the uh, Plymouth Barracudas in, uh, in Trans Am in 1970. But nonetheless, we're going to go ahead and play this uh, interview with Phil Remington. And I uh, hope you guys enjoy that. And then we'll be back. And then we're going to do uh, a little bit on Ned Scudder. I want to welcome Phil Remington to the show. Phil Remington is another former Carroll Shelby employee. He used to be the chief engineer for Carroll Shelby during the racing days. And uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Phil Remington to the show. Phil, are you there? Yes, I am. How you doing, Phil? Good, thanks. Now, I met you in California at one of the Shelby meets, so I'd say in the early 2000 days, back when they had the big Shelby employee reunion. So how you been since then? Good, thanks. Okay. Keep busy. All right, that's good. Now, uh, I won't disclose your age, but I will say you've been around for probably uh, almost nine decades, right? Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I'm 91. Okay, well, and you're still at it. That's amazing. Phil, tell us a little bit about your uh, days back at Carroll Shelby. As a matter of fact, let's go back to before you worked for Carroll Shelby. Who did you work for before then? Before Carroll, I worked for Lance of Antelope. Okay. We built uh, sports cars and a couple of Formula One cars, and then... After we moved over to the Princeton building, uh, Pete Rose and Amo and I built him a little sports car from some of the stuff we had left over from the small uh, open wheel cars that we'd built. Okay. Now, what that one of the cars that you worked on for Reventlow was most notably the uh, Scarab, correct? Well, we built three Scarabs. Okay. Three Roadsters, and then we built a car we ran in Europe that was a Formula One car. But it wasn't very successful. We didn't have enough horsepower 
plus we were pretty well outdated on the chassis design. At that time, all the successful F1 cars were rear engine, and ours was still a front engine, four-cylinder tilted on an angle, and we never did get the damn uh, timing right, but we were in such a rush, and consequently, we didn't have enough horsepower or the chassis capability to keep up with the foreigners. So after the uh, race at Zandvoort and Holland, we brought it back home here. Wow. Okay, now, as the story goes, when uh, Lance Preventlo decided to close his shop, Carol Shelby moved in there, took over the shop, and you you basically came with the shop. You were there, and so you didn't really yeah, have to... we had about three or four employees that were left over. So there was Bill Likes and uh, myself and Emil, and a little... Pete Brock did a little bit of stuff at that time. He was just getting going with Shelby, and uh, that's when we built the... Uh, Open the wheel cars and that little roadster for Lance. Okay. And uh, so what was one of the first cars that you worked on for Carroll Shelby? Well, the first one was one of the three that he had sent over. And uh, one of the cars he took to Dean Moons, and they painted it and uh, installed a small block Ford in a 260. And the water radiator was a Corvette radiator and the header tank. And uh, repainted the whole car and... Uh, that's the one that he introduced as the first one on display. And oh. then the second one, he decided he wanted to go racing against the Corvette. So at that time, we'd come out with a 289 displacement engine. So we uh, did what we could to the car in such a short hurry, changed the wheels and put some different brakes on it. And uh, we ran that at uh, Riverside, and Billy Krauss, the driver, was leading all the cars, and the left rear hub broke. The hubs were designed for a smaller motor with a lot less torque, and there weren't enough fillets in the flanges to support the extra weight. So after a few laps, while we were in the lead, the hub broke, and that put us out of business. So after that, I went to my friend Ted Allibrand, who built race cars and a lot of suspension pieces as well as wheels. Anyway, he gave me some forging, so I machined up a couple of new hubs, and we put them into service, and from then on, we had no more trouble, but we had to update all the hubs that were coming from Europe in the meantime. I gotcha. What are some of the other significant uh, engineering changes that you had to do to the Cobra to uh, make it uh, extremely competitive as it was back in the day? Basically, it was a matter of uh, some shock absorbers, and we lowered the car quite a bit, but it still had a problem with the steering. It had an old Wormann Sector steering in it, and uh, every time you go through bump curve, it would change the torque curve about half an inch. So we hauled enough to AC cars, so they finally put a rack and pinion in the ensuing cars, and that cured that problem. The rest were just minor tweaks. We do brake ducts and Mainly engine work at the time, but to, to maintain the reliability, we did not go for a lot of horsepower. What about the two, the 427 cars now? What kind of uh, changes and um, modifications did you have to do to that car? To Well, that car was done on a complete new chassis. We went through a four-inch tube, and it was a complete independent suspension with wishbones rather than the leaf springs. So from Ford to... Bob Nextead did most of the design on that. 
he worked with people at AC Cars, and they built this newer version to accept 427. Okay. What about the, uh, the, did you have the same type of problems, wear problems, brake problems, uh, suspension problems with the 427 well, car? What we did, we just, not so much suspension, but we still had brake problems, but we kept upgrading the brakes in the size and pad material and rotor material. We went through quite a few changes there, and we had some capable people working with us on the shock absorbers. Okay. Now, you, did you also worked on the GT40 program, too, right? Yeah, I was involved in that from the start. Okay. Now, in England, we did the first finish, the first prototype at Lola, and then uh, retested it at Goodwood with Bruce McLaren, and it uh, looked very feasible, so Ford said, go ahead with the program. Now, was that so car... They, uh, did a full-size uh, body plug at Ford in fiberglass. And they sent that to England, and one of their local body people made molds and parts off of that. In the meantime, they sent about four people over to the engineering on a new chassis. That was the steel chassis was done at Abbey Panels up in northern England, and they'd bring the cars back down south, and we would fit them with the fuel tanks and motors and radiators. We had various suppliers. Most of them were all from England at that time. Okay. Now, you actually went to England and actually worked in the shops there while the GT40 was being developed, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. How much time did you spend over there at that time? Oh, off and on, seven or eight months, I guess, between that and the Cobras. I was doing both, and also we had a what we call a Sunbeam Tiger, which is a little Hillman Roadster with a, we put a small... Okay. Now those cars also started out with a Worman Sector Gear uh, steering box, and then you guys what modified it and put uh, yeah. rack and pinion in that one too. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Now, when you guys were over there in England, what did you use for a test track? Uh, Goodwood, mainly. And okay. Then, and we also went to uh, Monza a couple times to test. It was pouring down rain there. I remember Eric Brody drove the car on the old high bank track, and about halfway through, the rear body section flew off. So that was a pretty exciting moment for him. <laughs> but, uh, he saved it, we stuck it back on and continued the test. Well, now, Monza, that's all the way down in Italy, so that was a long yes. track. Uh-huh. Wow. Yep. Now, why did, why did they use that track? Because it was laid out differently? Yeah, it was not the only one where you could do much real good high-speed testing. Okay. At the time, a lot of the tracks were closed and unavailable or so run down, you couldn't use them. Uh-huh. Okay. So then when you came back to the United States, now, the, the GT40 was a fairly sophisticated car, wasn't it? Pardon me? The GT40 was a fairly sophisticated car, wasn't it? Yes, very much for the time. And from the time of its inception till the time they came up with the final Mark IVs, was there a lot of development changes in that car? Yeah, we did an awful lot. We went, well, after the first few runs, they didn't have much success running up from England, so uh, Deuce decided to turn the program over to Shelby, and they sent all the stuff over here. 
and we uh, did what we could in the short time we had, and uh, we won uh, Daytona with it and uh, continued to build and develop at that time. These were all still the 289s. Now, the uh, the GT40, so it was it was 67 that you guys raced a big block in that car, correct? No, we ran two years. In 66, we finished one, two, three. Those okay. were all 427s in the old GT40 chassis. And the Mark IV, that was a honeycomb chassis that was uh, done at Carcraft in Detroit. And we did the body work. We modified it. It was not too successful as it was when they first ran it. So, again, they turned it over to us at Shelby, and I did a complete new body shape for it. And we made parts and tested it, and it was pretty successful at Kingman Test Track. So we decided to go ahead from there and finish up about six of them. I think we ran three or four, and uh, we did two or three for John Holman. And they finished them up to their specifications. Okay. Now, there's a rumor. Is it true that the original GT40 design was based off of Lola? Uh, basic, the basic idea was, but the tub itself was completely different. Okay. Now, you were with Shelby for, I guess, what, seven years in total? Seven or eight years, yes. yeah. Do you have a really memorable story that you can share with our listeners about you and Carol Shelby? Something funny, something jovial. Well, I think the biggest funny thing was uh, we decided when we went to uh, Daytona Beach, she and his girlfriend, that all the crew would have to have those bib overalls lined us all up in those outfits, and they were so improbable the guys couldn't even work with them so they strip them off and tie the things around their waist and that was the last of the bib overalls i know he was upset because we didn't want to wear them and his girlfriend was either more upset because she thought of the idea i guess <laughs> another thing i can recall is that when we were on princeton al dad our vice president had a live cobra he used to keep in a glass cage up in his office, and uh, everybody started to get scared of things because it was deadly, and they had a nightlight on to keep a little warmth in there for this snake, and uh, I guess someone got tired of worrying about it, so they shut the light off, and the snake froze that night and died, so that cleaned up that problem. <laughs> a real cobra snake he had oh, up in yeah. a... Oh, yeah. No kidding. there I... for six months or better. Oh, I never heard that story. That's yep. a good one. Well, we're just about out of time. Phil, thanks for coming on the air, and we'll talk to you in the future. All righty. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. We're back. Now, that was a short interview with Phil Remington. I'm surprised nobody was, ah, in the background. (laughs) Well, here's the deal. We called Phil this afternoon, okay, because, again, like I said, it was short notice, and he's actually at work at All-American Racers, okay? Now, when we get him back on again, we're going to do a regular show with him because he's a real interesting guy, and there's so much more that he talked about in that that little... uh, interview right there, which is really, really great. Now, my next interview is with Ned Scudder. Ned is the Cobra Registrar for the uh, Shelby American Club, SAC, okay? So all of us that are diehard Shelby guys, vintage guys, uh, let's play a little short uh, excerpt from uh, from that interview with uh, Ned. Hey, I want to take uh, a few minutes here. I want to welcome a friend of mine to the show, to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and my friend is uh, Ned Scudder. And Ned is the registrar for Shelby American, and his uh, specialty is AC Cobras. It's unfortunate none of us are happy that uh, Carol Shelby passed away here a couple days ago. But uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do a tribute show. So I figured I'd uh, welcome Ned to the show because he's very much involved with Cobras. And uh, maybe he could share a few stories with us. Uh, Ned, are you there? And welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. How are you? I'm pretty good. Tell us 
us uh, exactly what you do. You're with the Shelby American Club, and uh, you're in charge of the uh, Cobra Registry. And tell us Correct. what that is. I've been doing the histories of the Cobras for a little over 30 years now, since, since, the, uh, since the mid-70s or so. Okay. And what exactly do you do as a registrar? So as a registrar, you basically tabulate all the cars and you keep tabs on them and you're very much on top of the history of all the cars, correct? Yeah, I'm sort of the, uh, the, the, the liaison between the owners and the Shelby Club. So I gather the information, whether it be from letters or phone calls or emails from owners. They send me photographs. They send me histories. Uh, and, and we tabulate uh, ownership files. We were able to gain a lot of information uh, from Shelby himself back in the 80s uh, when we cleaned out his attic in, uh, in California. And uh, we got a lot of paperwork from that, and, and it got to the point where we had a lot more information on the cars than he did. Wow. And you were telling me off air here a little bit that Carol used to call you for information on some of the cars, true? Yes, that is true. Shelby was was always uh, a figure larger than life, and everybody who had a Cobra knew he was still around, and they weren't sure how to contact him. So frequently what they would do, they would either call uh, uh, his office when he had it in Los Angeles or when he later moved to Las Vegas, and they would start asking questions about their car. And what they probably didn't know was that while Shelby could recall chassis numbers, he did not remember specific information about each car. So he would actually call me, the registrar, and say, Ned, I can't remember this. Uh, some fellow has asked me a question about the history of the car, and did we put this on it at the factory, or was it added later? And he said, I, I can't remember. Can you help me out? So I would, would go through the paperwork, and I'd either call him back or dig through it while we were on the phone together and, and try to get him the information he needed. And then he would answer to the customer, and everybody was happy. Now, they made a total of how many Cobras? They made 260-289 cars, and they made 427-428 uh, cars. What was the total production run for each uh, each group? Uh, there were 650, roughly, of the small block cars, um, and there were another uh, uh, 260 uh 300 uh, cars of the 427 uh, cars. There, there were 998 Cobras in total. Uh, however, where it gets tricky is is that roughly uh, 9% of that production was saved by AC in Europe, so they weren't technically called Shelbys. Uh, they were called ACs over there. Okay. Now, the, the prefix designation CXX stands for Carol Shelby Export. The cars that were in Europe, COB was Cobras of Britain, and then there was another one, too. I can't remember. That was the ones that went overseas. Well, uh, yeah, if, if you think about it from the British perspective, the CO was Cobra and the B was Britain. The X was Export. Hence, the British cars were right-hand drive. Those that were exported from Britain were left-hand drive. Okay. And then what about the ones that went elsewhere besides the United States, for example, like to Europe or maybe the Mideast or Far East or something like that? Didn't they have a different designation as well? No. If, if, if there were cars that actually were shipped to the Middle East or some such, we're not aware of that. Okay. Um, Shelby had the rights to produce and sell the cars as Shelby's, as Shelby Cobras, in America, in North America. Um, we're not aware of any cars that, that ended up directly in South America, although some people did buy them through Shelby in California. Um, 
AC retained the rights to sell the cars in, in all of Europe. So if you were European and a customer, you generally went right to AC cars in England, and they told you where your nearest dealer would be in, in whatever country you might be talking of. What's the percentage of Cobras that still exist today, real ones? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's well over 95% uh, that still exist. But what we don't know to a T is how many of those cars were uh, <laughs> kind of destroyed back when and, and rebuilt from very little uh, once the values warranted that. There, there are a number of cars for which that is the case. Since they're not so much the original car any longer, they are uh, rebuilt over the course of time, some of which using uh, much later major components such as chassis, bodies, etc., Okay. Now, the Cobras that are being built right now in Las Vegas, the CSX cars, and I believe it's the, are the 4000 series cars, they're either fiberglass or aluminum, or is that, are they, is that Correct. just, okay. What is your take on those cars? I mean, those cars do have direct Shelby lineage. In terms of value and from a collectability standpoint, do you think those cars will uh, increase in value and be fairly collectible down the road? It's hard to say. Um, I personally do not know what the Shelby organization is going to be doing moving ahead now that Carroll himself has passed away. But to the extent that they are still making those cars, they're still making uh, Cobras that are very much like the cars they built in the 60s. They're still making them in aluminum and in fiberglass. Um, since their numbers are not yet finite, and they've made many, many more than they ever built in the 60s, it's it's very hard to assess what their ultimate value is going to be. Okay. But now, from your perspective, would it be fair to say that those cars are still recognized as Cobras? But oh, absolutely not, they are. Okay. So they're not original 65, 66, 67 big block Cobras, but they are original Carroll Shelby Cobras. Would that be a fair statement? That is a fair statement, yes. Okay. And speaking of Shelby, uh, your daughter's name is Shelby. Tell us that little story about uh, your daughter, Shelby, and the first time she met Carol Shelby. Yes, my daughter is now 27, but when she was 7 or 8, uh, we were at Lime Rock, Connecticut for the uh, uh, vintage races they hold there every Labor Day. And on Sunday, they hold what they call the Sunday Show of Shelby's. And one year, my wife and both kids, uh, we all decided to go, and uh, Carol was there, and he and I were chatting, and I mentioned that my daughter was, was with me, and that her name was Shelby, which he knew already, and he said, I would love to meet her. So Shelby came over, and uh, my daughter Shelby sat on Carol Shelby's lap, and he chatted with her for a bit, and he said, you know, Shelby, I know that you are one of a number of people named after me, and I have to tell you... It just tickles my heart like you cannot believe to meet people like you. And and he, they just had a terrific little conversation. Here, my seven, eight-year-old daughter sitting on Shelby's lap. It was wonderful. Wow, that's great. Now, you yourself have a couple of Cobras, right? And you've had yours for a very long time. I've, I've owned a half a dozen over the years. I, I now have just one. I'm down to one car. I figured at, at, at my stage in life, uh, I don't need a, a plethora of Cobras. Okay. Well, which one did you keep? Did you keep the big black 427 one you had years ago? The, the, I, I, of those, I, I have sold my last big block, and I now have a small block car. Oh, really? Okay. Well, now, since you're kind of a Cobra expert, you know, there's always been two schools of thought. Well, you know, you want the big block because the big block is the baddest thing on the planet, but yet people say from 
from a drivability standpoint that the 289 car was probably a better driver. Is uh, any validity to that? Different people will have different thoughts on the subject. Um, uh, my enjoyment these days comes from several of the various Cobra touring groups that exist, and, and we take these cars 15, 20, 30 at a time, and we tour through uh, either the mountains of uh, Virginia, West Virginia, Georgia, Tennessee, etc., or we go out west, Montana, Wyoming, uh, etc. And to my way of thinking, uh, I prefer the small block on those tours simply because it is it is lighter in the front end, and um, it just seems to be a more a fun car on the twisties, which is usually the kinds of roads we look for. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'd like to do that. Have you ever done the Colorado Grand? I've never done the Colorado Grand. No, these tours are similar. They're they're a thousand miles or better. Um, but the Colorado Grand, I understand, is 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 very special. Okay, great. Well, anyway, I want to thank my guests this evening, or one of my many guests will be on the show a little bit later because we're doing a tribute to Carol Shelby. But I want to thank Ned Scudder for taking the time out and uh, calling us here in uh, Clearwater. And uh, Ned, I will probably see you at uh, Watkins Glen for the Shelby meet, and with a little luck. Maybe I might be able to make it out to Monterey, which I'm looking forward to. So, but uh, well, again, I, I hope to be able to see you at both. Okay. Well, anyway, thanks again for coming on the show, and uh, you take care now. Okay. You too. Thank you, Robert. Okay. Bye bye. So long. Okay, we're back, and that was a short interview with uh, Ned Scudder. But I know I called a whole bunch of people in the Shelby Club and said, hey, tune in. This is going to be a great show. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. This was our Carol Shelby tribute show. Stay safe. Drive carefully. Love your family. We'll see you at some of the car shows. And uh, Carol Shelby, I hope you're having fun there hanging gears up there in the big highway in the sky. He was an inspiration to all of us. Shelby, uh, I told you that I would uh, do your program next Wednesday, uh, but I have to test the uh, thousand horsepower Mustang all day uh, Wednesday. I'll talk to you in the meantime. This is Friday afternoon. I'm just trying to call you back. Take care.